This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day Gripposaurus. We have a ton of dinosaur news as usual. Yep, it's the norm. <laughs> yeah. And we would like to thank our Stegosaurus patrons, Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, and Remy Rodriguez. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all your support and it helps us keep this podcast going. So yeah. if you want to join this awesome group of people, check out our page at patreon.com slash I know dino. So jumping right into the news, we have another new dinosaur because, again, there are a lot of them. This one we actually knew about last week, but there were too many to cover. So we delayed one a week. It's a new basal theropod from Argentina, and it's in preprint in Meganiana, the Argentinian peer review journal. And this genus is named Luciano Venator, and it's Luciano's hunter after Luciano Leyes, who reported the fossils. And actually, the paper specifies that his brother found the fossils but didn't report them. And then when Luciano reported them, they named it after him. <laughs> so I bet the brother wishes that he reported them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so originally it was going to be called Lucianosaurus, but apparently that was already taken. So then it became Luciano Venator, which is another pretty popular name ending because Hunter works pretty well for dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. The species name is Bonoi after Tulio Abel del Bono, who helped get funding for the excavation. And Luciano Venator, I almost said Lucianosaurus, <laughs> is a coelophysoid, which means it has a long neck and it's skinny, and the family is generally small but quick and also carnivorous. There's theories that maybe they ate really small animals or possibly insects. And it was from the Triassic about 205 million years ago, so we're really talking about early days of dinosaurs. They created a sculpture of it that's about 2.4 meters or 8 feet long, and they estimated it would have weighed about 40 kilograms or 90 pounds, which sounds like not that much for that length, but you got to remember that they're real thin, and then most of that length is their neck and their tail, so there's not a lot of meat in the middle. <laughs> if you want to see it, it's on display at the Institute and Museum of Natural Sciences of the National University of San Juan, where they had a big press release, but it's going to be part of a permanent exhibit now. Very cool. Yeah. I really like it when they make lifelike restorations of the dinosaurs so early on so that there are pictures of it right when we're talking about them. Mm -hmm. 
If you're lucky enough to live nearby and visit. Yeah, I'm not really sure how big of a town San Juan, Argentina is. In other dinosaur discoveries, there are two new dinosaur track sites from the lower Cretaceous in Sichuan Basin in China. It was published in Historical Biology. So these two different track sites are, as I said, both in the Sichuan Basin, which is straight west of Shanghai. A little ways, though. We're getting pretty far into China at that point. And all of the tracks are kind of jutting up like on a wall. It's also interesting. They're all the natural casts of prints. So basically, if a dinosaur steps and it, you know, say it steps in wet sand and it walks away and just the right things happen, that sand gets buried before the print gets washed away, and then the right chemical composition is there, so that print turns into a fossil. (laughs) The other side of it, the rock that fills in that space where the print was, also becomes a fossil. So you almost always have this natural cast fossil, and then you have the actual print itself. So in both of these cases, the cast version of it. So it bulges out from the rock Hmm. and they don't know what happened to the original actual print marking. It probably just fell off the cliff face and broke into a bunch of pieces and disappeared. So crazy. Yeah. So the first one is of sauropod prints with a bipedal ornithopod as well. And there's about seven total prints and it's from the late Jurassic The other one is a pair of ornithopod tracks and just one theropod track. So not a ton of prints, but it still gives some good information about what dinosaurs might have been around at the time. And it's interesting when you see kind of coexisting dinosaurs. Makes you wonder if the ornithopod and the sauropods were actually close together or if maybe one walked by hours later or what exactly happened. One was following the other. Yeah. (laughs) Like the sauropods were carving out the landscape, <laughs> plowing the way <laughs> in the north of the pods, just following along. <laughs> There's also another paper in the same journal with most of the same authors about a different track site, also in the Sichuan Basin. <laughs> it was pretty confusing when I saw these. This one had over 20 sauropod tracks, but these are from the early Jurassic rather than from the late Jurassic, so... Talking about probably 50 million years earlier. So they paved the way for those other sauropods that paved the way for the ornithopods. I guess so. (laughs) Potentially, in the Sabrina hypothesis. (laughs) Of the 20, there's a best preserved set kind of going through the middle of them that you can actually see something about them. And they're a narrow gauge set of what they call brontopodus type. That's like the ichnotaxa. And the prints are pretty small. They're about 35 centimeters or 14 inches long. And the researchers say, quote, These tracks suggest that basal sauropodomorphs and primitive sauropods coexisted in this region during the early Jurassic, end quote. That makes sense. The sauropodomorphs morphing into sauropods. Yep. Going to have some coexisting. Yeah. Technically basal sauropodomorphs because sauropods are sauropodomorphs. Well, yes. (laughs) I always catch you on that one. I know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> they also, they were trying to identify what sauropod it might have been. And there aren't too many known sauropods from the early Jurassic in the area. There's one called Gongshianosaurus, which was about 14 meters long, but they can't compare it to it because apparently there was a structure built around an in situ display of the holotype. And in situ means that it's still basically partially in the rock. But then in 2014, the exhibition hall that was built around that 
collapsed and probably destroyed the holotype. Oh, so, that's too yeah, bad. It is sad. It really, I wonder how that happened. Earthquake? Yeah, I guess that could be. Oh, or there was a mudslide or something? Yeah, I suppose so. If you're building around in situ fossils, there's a likelihood of being in kind of a geologically unstable area. So. Yeah, could happen. There was a big landslide in California recently. One million tons of rock. Yeah, I suppose if that landed on it, you're not going to recover it. <laughs> <laughs> Next, scientists at Tomsk State University have released some new information about the as-yet-unnamed Siberosaurus, which is a titanosaur that was first found in 2008. It's taken eight years to excavate the fossils. It came from a cliff face in the Kemerovo region in Russia. But it's definitely a new type of dinosaur. It lived about 100 million years ago in the Cretaceous, and it was 66 feet or 20 meters long and weighed 50 tons. It will be fully described and named soon, and they're also working on making a model. So speaking of making models, well. Yeah, that'd be cool. I wonder where they'll put it on display. Wherever it can fit. <laughs> yeah, I and there's also a new discovery of an existing taxa, so we already know about it. In fact, it's basically a completely ubiquitous <laughs> taxa. It's called Eolambia, and it's from the Cedar Mountain Formation in Utah. And this find was published in PLOS One. And what makes it notable is that even though it's the most abundant dinosaur from the area, we mostly have skulls and other non delicious parts of the dinosaur <laughs> because i guess this thing was often prey because it's a, a hadrosaur it was the cow of its time yeah basically <laughs> so the researchers are pretty happy because they finally found a pelvis and they wanted to find a pelvis of an adult this one turned out to be a sub-adult but it's still about eight years old i think they were estimating so it had pretty good size to it and they also found many of its vertebrae and i think one rib that's all kind of in the area where the other dinosaurs like to eat. So it's good that they finally found some full bones there. Some tasty bits. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and another find of an existing dinosaur taxa. Researchers published in the Journal of Iberian Geology two partial maxilla and several teeth from Portugal and as a reminder, maxilla are basically the upper jaw. So in humans, it's the part that's covered by our upper lip and cheek, kind of. You know, it's like that palate kind of zone. It's interesting. They call it an upper jaw, but it's really not jaw-like. You know, it doesn't move. It's attached to the rest of the head <laughs> in most animals. But anyway, they believe it's from a Torvosaurus, and they think it looks a lot like the relatively recent Torvosaurus gurnii that was found in Portugal and described recently. And one cool thing about it is it extends the known Torvosaurus distribution in the area to about 153 million years ago to 145 million years ago. So now it's about an 8 million year span that we think the Torvosaurus was in the area. And That's a long time. Yeah. And if you're wondering where that fits in the Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, that's the very end of the Jurassic. 145 million years ago is the dividing line between Jurassic and Cretaceous. And last in existing <laughs> dinosaur discoveries, researchers in Japan found a partial spinosaurid tooth, and it was found about 50 miles or 80 kilometers northwest of Tokyo. 
you know, usually when I'm describing where dinosaurs are found, I have to find either a very distant city and say it's like hundreds of miles away or say it's very close to some tiny city. It's interesting when it happens actually close to a, a major city that most people recognize. Yeah. So apparently this quarry is pretty well known. They found a lot of fish and other things there, but it's the first dinosaur piece that they found in the quarry. This one's from about 125 to 130 million years ago. And it's right in the middle of when we know spinosaurids were around, which is estimated at about 148 to 93 million years, which is such a long period of time. It really makes me think, why don't we have more spinosaurids, especially since they're aquatic and usually aquatic things fossilize pretty well. It's so weird to me that we don't just have spinosaurids everywhere. But I don't know. Maybe they weren't super common. I'm not sure. If they're only semi-aquatic. Yeah. But even then, on beaches and stuff, maybe beaches don't fossilize as well. I don't know. It's the second spinosaurid tooth from Japan, and they're both from the same formation, although not the same quarry. So pretty cool. There was a cool editorial on Minifin about Africa's rich history of fossil hunters. Speaking of spinosaurids, Spinosaurus, which was found in Africa, and fossil hunting in Africa in the 19th and 20th centuries. But there were fossils found well before that. There were some giant bones found in Morocco in 300 to 400 BC, possibly of fossilized elephants. Egyptians collected mammal fossil bones 3,000 years ago. Fossilized shark teeth were collected and worn as pendants in Egypt 6,500 years ago. Oh. In Congo, there's a 21,000-year-old site that had a fossilized elephant tooth. That mm. elephant had been extinct for millions of years before that site. And that means that somebody may have found this fossil and brought it home. <laughs> what I found. <laughs> yeah. And there's also an undated Khoisan, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. It's a rock art site in Lesotho that seems to represent dinosaur footprints. So fossils from more than 200 million years ago are often found in that area. And it's possible that ancient people found them and then made art of it. Some people hypothesize that these ancient people saw the footprints as part of a race of giant flightless birds. And what's interesting about that is, you know, we often talk about how birds are descendants of dinosaurs. Yeah. So it's a really cool history. I didn't realize there was that much to it. And it's important now to find ways to continue to research fossils in Africa. I know we, we talk a lot about fossils and expeditions on Pretty much all the other continents. <laughs> yeah, there aren't too many that go on in Africa, especially outside of Lesotho and South Africa. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of areas that you'd think would be a great place to go exploring, especially deserts. Yeah. Where there isn't a lot of plant life getting in the way. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of birds and their link to dinosaurs. <laughs> Good you, one. <laughs> you might remember that not too long ago, there was a study where they kind of stuck a plunger to the back of a chicken to see how it would move around if it had a tail. And then they kind of said that, oh, it's walking like a dinosaur. Poor chicken. Yeah. There's a similar sort of logic to a new study that was published in AAAS in Science Advances. And that's their open access part. So I really like it. They wanted to see how flight might have evolved in dinosaurs. And they decided to look at some trained Pacific parrotlets. That's an actual species of parrot, I guess. <laughs> or I guess maybe it's not a parrot, it's a parrotlet. Anyway, they <laughs> what they did is they trained them to travel between quote-unquote branches 
and basically there were perches or sticks that they put at fixed distances and they trained them using food so the birds are kind of simulating foraging because these birds kind of hop around in the forest to forage the researchers say that foraging arboreal birds jump hop or fly between close branches up to 30 times a minute. Hmm. So that's a lot of hopping around between branches in the trees. And what they found from this research is they basically moved these little branches or pedestals farther apart to see how they would move between them. And they found for really short distances, they just hopped. They didn't use their wings at all. They only used their feet. And they do that because it's more efficient. It's a lot easier to jump than it is to fly. Then for longer distances, they just flew because hopping is impossible. But for medium distances, that's really the interesting part. They used what they call a proto wing beat and a parrotlet could go up to 60% farther with a proto wing beat. And that's basically just like one little half wing beat, you know, like <laughs> they don't lift their wings all the way. They just kind of give it like a little... <laughs> like a little chicken As flop. The minimum amount of effort they needed to get to yeah, where they wanted to be. Exactly. If it was farther than they thought they could do with this little proto wing beat, they just kind of go into a full flight. But it's pretty amazing that they could almost double their hop with just like this little kind of half-hearted wing beat. <laughs> but then what the researchers did, how they tied it back to dinosaurs, is they kind of extrapolated how the parrotlet can fly and half fly in between branches to other dinosaurs and saw, hey, based on their anatomy, how much farther could they hop by doing one of these proto wing beats? And they think that Archaeopteryx could go about 25% farther than a regular hop by giving it a little half-hearted wing beat. It's quite a bit. Yeah, that's pretty, it's significant. Microraptor, they think, could do about 20%. And then Proto-Archaeopteryx maybe could do about 10%. But Proto-Archaeopteryx had relatively small wings and not a ton of feathers, and it weighed four kilograms or nine pounds, so it wasn't really <laughs> set up for flight. But they were saying that early feathered dinosaurs could have used this to jump more efficiently, and they could have used it on cluttered ground or in the trees. Mm. So it's agnostic of the ground up or trees down hypotheses <laughs> for flight. That's interesting. Yeah. Although, I mean, to me, since they were studying things hopping between branches, it fits a little bit better with the trees down. But from the very early evolutionary perspective, you could say like those forest grounds are often just littered with all sorts of tree debris and other stuff. So if you could hop over longer distances, it could be pretty helpful, especially if you're small. I can imagine... Whatever is uh, hunting one of those animals, it'd be an interesting sight, hopping yeah. around. Yeah. It might make them harder to catch, too. Probably. There's some really cool videos of it. If you like slow-mo videos of animals, it's really fun to watch these parrotlets hopping and half-flying and then full-flying between the little branches. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a link in our show notes if you want to check it out. One of them they put as almost like a GIF, so it just like loops forever. So you just watch it hop and hop and hop. <laughs> but in slow-mo, right? Yeah, it's right. pretty relaxing. I was thinking it was kind of dramatic looking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that too. Next in Illinois, Augustana College published a piece honoring Dr. William Hammer, the Fritjof Frixel Chair of Geology and Director of the Frixel Geology Museum, who is retiring this month. And Dr. Hammer found the first carnivorous dinosaur in Antarctica, Cryolophosaurus elliotti, 
back in 1991, and he went to Antarctica eight times on research trips. His first trip was in 1975. Next year, he'll be a consultant on the Chicago Field Museum traveling exhibit on Antarctic fossils, which makes a lot of sense. Dinosaur Isle Museum and the Royal Society celebrated Rev. William Fox on May 26th and 27th in the village of Brystone. Rev. Fox lived there from 1813 to 1881, and four dinosaurs are named after him. There's Polycanthus foxi, an ankylosaur, Hypsilophodon foxi, an ornithopod, Eucomeritus foxi, a sauropod, and Calamospondylus foxi, a small carnivorous dinosaur. And he actually discovered the Hypsilophodon, which is one of the first nearly complete dinosaurs, and it was described by Thomas Huxley, who used it to establish Ornithopoda. Professor Paul Barrett from the Natural History Museum in London gave a lecture on the 26th on recent advances in paleontology, and on the 27th, the Fox Trail launched. It's a kind of new walking trail. I say kind of because it's a trail that Rev. Fox probably used. Hmm. (laughs) Visitors to Dinosaur Isle Museum can also see some of Fox's fossils. They're currently on loan from the Natural History Museum. Cool. They keep adding more cool stuff to Dinosaur Isle. Mm -hmm. They're really embracing the dinosauriness. Yeah, (laughs) you might as well. (laughs) In Cardiff, Wales, the National Museum of Wales promoted a new exhibit called Dinosaur Babies with... A pile of dinosaur poo and a smashed sculpture in the city center. Mm. I'm guessing that they try based on the pictures, they made it look like a dinosaur smashed the sculpture and then pooped. That's my guess. <laughs> but the statue is of Welsh dino father Thomas H. Thomas, <laughs> who found dinosaur footprints in 1878. And when he found the prints, villagers told him they were footprints of the devil. But he saw the similarity between them and dinosaur footprints that had recently been found in North America. Hmm. And so those prints that he found were classified as from a megalosaurus, about 220 million years old. And the Dinosaur Babies exhibit runs until November 5th. If you go there, you can see dinosaur eggs and embryos, a model of a dinosaur nest, and skeletons. Tickets cost seven pounds for adults and three pounds for kids. Is that a Welsh sense of humor? Putting like poop in the middle of town maybe there's some kind of reference there i don't know i have no idea (laughs) or maybe they just thought it'd be funny and attention grabbing yeah that could be too (laughs) next thanks to kevin who shared this one with us via facebook speaking of museums and dinosaur poop the manitoba museum in canada has a new exhibit called world of dinosaurs and that features animatronic dinosaurs that can urinate and fart (laughs) So the Dilophosaurus that they have makes these farting noises, and the museum can actually install a smell cartridge, but they're testing it first to see how offended people get. Don't do that. (laughs) So if you were there, I guess you would help them decide not to. But the Protoceratops that they have can urinate into a pond full of yellow food coloring at the press of a button, so then it looks Uh like it's peeing. And there's some other large dinosaurs. They have a 66-foot or 20-meter-long Mementosaurus. Uh, Dino Don Lessam is the one who created the exhibit, and he was an advisor for the Jurassic Park film. Apparently, the Alloway Hall at the museum was one of the few places with enough space to house all these giant dinosaurs. Interesting. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) In the Northern Territory in Australia, there is a fiberglass brontosaurus landmark named Big Kev, who stands next to Stewart Highway. And Big Kev has been around since about 2007, when stonemason Tom Finlay purchased him from a company in the Philippines for $100,000 and placed him on the Finlay's stone site. But now Big Kev's home has been planned to be updated, 
and the brontosaurus may have to move. It's not clear yet what's going to happen to it, but if he doesn't stay at the new and improved site, he'll probably move somewhere else and not be destroyed since it's considered a landmark. And the article that talked about it quoted a a child, I think it's like two or four years old, that said he'd be so sad if the <laughs> brontosaurus left. <laughs> That's good. There's a lot of space in Australia. They can find somewhere to put it. Yeah. <laughs> So I found out that it's possible to get vinyl records with dinosaur bones in them. Romana's records, they press a lot of different things into their records. Razor blades, gunpowder, and then now dinosaur bones, which apparently the dinosaur bones in the vinyls that they make also glow in the dark. Hmm. And their CEO, Chris Banta, said, quote, we are always trying to push the bounds of creativity of what can be put in a record. (laughs) Makes sense. Uh, Each of these are limited editions. There's sometimes surface noise, I guess, from adding this stuff. But for the most part, the quality of the audio doesn't suffer, and they work really hard to make sure it doesn't. And they keep their process a secret, though. It's not clear where they got their dinosaur bones, but I'm guessing it's tiny fragments from a formation, and they were too small to be scientifically important. Yeah, I think so, because you couldn't put, like, a whole femur in a record. Yeah. (laughs) It's the same as what happened with our wedding rings. Yeah. I wonder... It makes it sound like the needle actually goes over them, which is really interesting. There was not too many details. Because <laughs> they said it affects the noise of the record, and unless the needle was going over it, you wouldn't even mention it. Yeah. Weird. In Charleston, South Carolina, a woman dressed in an inflatable T-Rex costume and scared two horses who were pulling a carriage of tourists. So the horses jerked the carriage, and the driver fell out and hurt his leg because the carriage rolled over it. That sounds very painful. Oof. No one else was hurt, so that's good. The woman is Nicole Wells. She's 26 years old. She turned herself into the police and was charged with disorderly conduct and wearing a mask or disguise. Huh. Weird. So she would like intentionally tried to scare these horses in a T-Rex costume? Yeah. There was speculation it was a protest over something to do with animals, but huh. it's not clear. I wonder what the T-Rex costume looked like. It's the same one we have. Oh, the inflatable one? Mm-hmm. That scared horses. Horses get scared by everything. Well, uh, one of the reports <laughs> was that she was growling at them, too. But still, yeah. like, how does that scare a horse? Well, they're not used to it. They know to be so. afraid of T-Rex. Because <laughs> <so. laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, it makes it sound like South Carolina has one of those laws like New York City where masks are illegal, too, because it says she got charged with that, too. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, I don't really think it would be illegal to, like, wear a costume and i have no idea yeah laws vary a lot depending where you are yeah next up we want to do a quick follow-up with last week's episode when we mentioned the bbc show the day the dinosaurs died and our summary of the show because we got a chance to watch it is that it's great yep (laughs) so it's primarily a documentary about the drilling into the peak ring that sean gulick and others did and it goes into like pretty good details about how they were drilling. They couldn't get quite as many cores as they wanted to because some of the problems that they had and just how they were measuring it to see when they got to the right points and they're showing you the rocks at all the different times, kind of describing the geology. It's really interesting. They also show this giant fridge that they put all the cores in in Europe. It's enormous. I don't even, it's like a warehouse, but it's a fridge. Mm -hmm. And apparently there's all sorts of different cores that have been taken around the world for other projects. But Sean, I mean, completely 
completely biased says like, well, ours are the best. You know, like, <laughs> so they're the most from... interesting looking or something. Yeah. yeah. And then the reason it's in a giant fridge basically is to make sure nothing grows on them. Yeah. Because like when we talked to Sean, he was talking about how maybe extremophiles go in there right after the impact or hits. And, you know, there might be some interesting life forms inside these rocks. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to contaminate it with all the bacteria that would get into it if you didn't put it in a fridge. So that was pretty cool. They also gave an analogy that the Chicxulub impactor hitting the earth is like a grain of sand hitting a bowling ball. Oh, yeah. And I had to check the math because I was like, is it though? And it's like, it's the perfect analogy. I've never... You were really impressed. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, it scales just perfectly. Even at the estimated 40,000 miles an hour, it still seems totally crazy to me that a grain of sand would do anything to a bowling ball. It's hmm. just such a... It's like... It doesn't make any sense. And it caused like volcanic eruptions potentially and like just so much havoc from such a tiny thing because the Chicxulub impactor, what did they say? It was like six miles across or something. It's under 10. Maybe Some, nine. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not big. But I guess really it's because it hit that specific area. And then it's actually more of a chemistry problem like Sabrina was talking about last week. It caused all these sulfates to go up into the atmosphere. So then I had to do more math. And <laughs> I realized the analogy is really more like you've got this layer around a bowling ball of like standard 5 16 inch bubble wrap, which is a thing. It's the only consistent 5 16 inch thing I could find. <laughs> all right. And that that layer is getting affected by some chemistry that's released by that grain of sand. And then it doesn't seem quite so crazy because then the volume isn't so drastically different. Plus, things in the upper atmosphere have a way bigger impact on the atmosphere than things in the lower atmosphere. So the sulfates got shot up really high, and then that really messed things up. Definitely worth watching the show, too. Yeah, it was really well done. Yeah, I did, usually we're watching those shows and I'm cringing at half the stuff they do, but that one was about as good as I it gets. I was impressed with the number of paleontologists they talked to and all over the world. Yeah, yeah. And that's probably the main reason it was so good. There wasn't a big narrating, you know, kind of thread to it. It was almost more like jumping from expert to expert. So mm -hmm. it was a really good format. And last, thanks to Taylor McCoy, who shared this one with us. Michael Crichton's novel Dragon Teeth has finally come out. It's available as an ebook, print book, and audiobook. And we've talked about this book before. So Crichton passed away around 2008. But a few years ago, his wife found this nearly complete manuscript, and then HarperCollins published it. Apparently, Crichton started collecting research for Dragon Teeth in 1974, and that means it probably inspired Jurassic Park. Hmm. So it's a historical thriller about dinosaurs in the Bone Wars, and it's set in the summer of 1876 and revolves around this fictitious hero, William Johnson, who gets caught up in the feud between Cope and Marsh. And it's gotten mostly four and five star reviews so far, and we look forward to reading it ourselves. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And our dinosaur of the day is Gryposaurus, which was a request from Canadian Trodon via YouTube. So thanks. <laughs> That's a good name. The name Gryposaurus means a hook-nosed lizard, and it's sometimes been translated as griffin lizard. Lawrence Lamb described Gryposaurus in 1914, and when he named it, he was referencing its nasal arch, which resembled a griffin. It had a narrow, arching nasal hump that some have described as like a Roman nose. Like my nose. (laughs) I think it might have been bigger. (laughs) Probably. My nose is pretty big, though. (laughs) The term Gryposaurus sometimes used for hadrosaurs with nasal arches. Gryposaurus lived in the late Cretaceous in North America, and it was found in Dinosaur Park Formation in Alberta, Canada, Two Medicine Formation in Montana, and Kaiparowitz Formation in Utah. It's similar to Cretosaurus, and for a while it was thought that they were synonyms. There's a long history between them. The first fossils were collected in 1913 by George Sternberg from Dinosaur Park Formation in Alberta, and they found a skull and a partial skeleton. And multiple skulls and some skeletons and some skin impressions have been found. A few years before the Gryposaurus find, in 1910, Barnum Brown had found and described a partial skull from New Mexico and called it Cretosaurus navajovius. Brown's specimen didn't have a snout, so he restored it based on Anatotitan, which now is also known as Edmontosaurus, and we talked about that back in episode 129, and so it had this flathead. Lamb described Gryposaurus differently, though. He focused on the nasal crest, and in 1916, the Cretosaurus skull was remade to have this nasal arch, and both Barnum Brown and Charles Gilmore suggested that the two were synonyms. This influenced William Park's decision to name a nearly complete skeleton found in dinosaur park formation, Cretosaurus incurvimanus, instead of Gryposaurus incurvimanus, but he let the type species Gryposaurus notabilis stay as its own genus. Parks considered Gryposaurus to be a junior synonym of Cretosaurus. It's hard to compare Cretosaurus incurvimanus and Gryposaurus notabilis because Cretosaurus incurvimanus is missing part of the front of its skull, so we don't see the full nasal arch. That's the most important part. 
In this case, yeah. Mm-hmm. Critosaurus is only known from partial remains, and it seems very similar to Gryposaurus, except that it lived a little bit later than Gryposaurus. And this is based on the slightly younger formation where it was found. In 1942, Lull and Wright published a monograph on hadrosaurs and said that Critosaurus and Gryposaurus were the same. But then in the 1990s, some scientists questioned Critosaurus Navajovius. There's limited material of it compared to other hadrosaurs, and so some think that the two genera are actually different. Some scientists, such as Jack Horner, have suggested that hadrosaurus is the same as Gryposaurus and Critosaurus. This was a common hypothesis in the 70s and the 80s. And as you discussed, Jack Horner is a well-known lumper. <laughs> the lumpiest. <laughs> <laughs> but in 1990, Jack Horner changed his mind and said Gryposaurus was its own genera. Oof, twist. Yeah. And most scientists now think that Hadrosaurus and Gryposaurus have differences in their upper arms and iliums. Hmm? Horner described the specimens of a second species of Gryposaurus, Gryposaurus latidens. And this is based on two parts of a skeleton that was collected in 1916 for the American Museum of Natural History. There's also bone bed material. So there's three valid species of Gryposaurus. Gryposaurus notabilis, Gryposaurus latidens, Gryposaurus monumentensis, which I'll get to in a little bit. There could be even four to five species, depending on who you ask. As I mentioned, the type species is Gryposaurus notabilis. Gryposaurus latidens has an informal name, Hadrosaurus, and that was used <laughs> early on, but it's no longer used. I kind of like that, Hadrosaurus. Yeah, I guess that goes along with the idea of Hadrosaurus being the same. I don't, I don't really know where it came from. Hmm. So there's a possible fourth Gryposaurus species. There's Gryposaurus alsatai, which was found in the Javelina Formation. Stephanosaurus marginatus was once considered to be a possible Cretosaurus species when Cretosaurus and Gryposaurus were considered synonymous, but now that's considered to be dubious. Jack Horner also created the new combination of Gryposaurus and Curvimanus. Gryposaurus has been found in various places, including Alberta, Utah, Montana, possibly Texas, so it had a really large geographical range. The genera lasted for at least 5 million years, which is a lot longer than most other taxon in Hadrosauridae, except for Edmontosaurus. And Gryposaurus latitans is from the lower two medicine formation in Montana and lived about 4 million years before other Gryposaurus species appeared, Notabilis and Incurvimanus. Monumentensis is about 1 to 2 million years younger than Notabilis and Incurvimanus. Gryposaurus monumentensis was named in 2007 by Natural History Museum of Utah paleontologists, and Scott Sampson called it the, quote, Arnold Schwarzenegger of duck-billed dinosaurs. What does that mean? Well, it had a very robust skull. Well, let me go back a little bit. The fossils were found in Utah, a skull and a partial skeleton, and those were named Gryposaurus monumentensis because it was found in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And researchers first found this in 2003. So it had this robust skull and thick bones in its limbs. It also had big jaws so it could eat really tough plant material. And it had 300 teeth in its mouth for eating, but it had a lot of replacement teeth. So at any time, it may have had more than 800 teeth. And that's, I guess, the gist of it. It was just big. Hmm. I guess Arnold Schwarzenegger is pretty big and robust. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Terminator, right? Yeah. So Gryposaurus was both bipedal and quadrupedal, and it ate a variety of plants and could eat food on the ground, as well as food that was up to 13 feet or 4 meters off the ground. It ground its food, similar to chewing, 
and it cropped vegetation first with its beak. Also had this cheek-like organ to keep food in its mouth. As Gryposaurus grew, its nasal arch got bigger. The arch was over an enlarged nasal opening, which may have held soft tissue, and it was probably covered by thick keratinized skin or had a cartilaginous extension. The nasal arch may have been for fighting each other or for identifying species or for sexual dimorphism. The nasal arch may have also been used to help push or butt in contests, and it may have had inflatable air sacs as visual and audio signals. Gryposaurus was about 30 feet or 9 meters long, and it had scales along the midline of its back, and these were pyramidal and ridged scales. It's a saurolophene hadrosaurid, which is a subfamily of hadrosaurs with hollow crests on their heads. Like Parasaurolophus. <laughs> Agrippasaurus was for a while considered to be a hadrosaurine, but then hadrosaurus was found to be different from other dinosaurs classified as hadrosaurines. So hadrosaurus was given a place beneath hadrosauridae, but then hadrosauridae could no longer be used because it didn't include hadrosaurus. Makes sense. So the next oldest genus in that group, Saurolophus, became the type genus of Saurolophinae, and now Gryposaurus is considered to be a Saurolophene. Gryposaurus probably lived on a floodplain with swamps, ponds, lakes, and a wet and humid climate, and it may have prefer being by the river. Other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place include Centrosaurus, Ancorithosaurus, Dromaeosaurids, Troodontids, Ornithomimids, Ankylosaurids, Tyrannosaurids, such as Albertosaurus, Parasaurolophus, and Ceratopsians, such as Utah Ceratops. That's a pretty good collection. Yeah. Good area to live in, apparently. Or bad. Well, well, yeah. they also lived among sharks and rays, frogs, salamanders, turtles, lizards, crocodilians, and early mammals, as marsupials and insectivorans. So quite a happening place. Where Gryposaurus lived was a relatively small area, and there were other hadrosaur species around at the same time and place, but they didn't seem to intermingle, and it's unclear why, since there were no known physical barriers like mountains to get in their way. It's also not clear how such a relatively small area supported so many large herbivores. So one hypothesis is that hadrosaurs and other large herbivores had slower metabolisms, or maybe there were large amounts of plants to eat, or the climate in the area known as West America varied across latitudes. So it's possible that plants in different areas would have been different, and that's why dinosaurs may not have mixed. And our fun fact of the day goes back to our discussion of the new Japanese Spinosaurid tooth, because when I read that, I thought, hey, how did Spinosaurus get to Japan? And then I was like, wait, was Japan even an island? So then I ended up reading this paper called The Origins of the Japanese Island, The New Big Picture, hmm. which is really comprehensive. <laughs> <laughs> it covers the entire geological history of Japan. I didn't read the whole thing because it's like 80 pages long, but I did read quite a bit of it. Probably more than I needed to. Today's rabbit hole. Yeah. So for a quick brief history, it starts by saying for 97% of its existence, Japan was not an island. So that's that crazy. Kind of answered my question right there. But the first Japanese metamorphic rock showed up about 590 million years ago in the Cambrian, which basically meant there were only bugs and plants around. And then the first dinosaurs showed up about 230 to 240 million years ago on earth that is and so you know probably japan because it was still connected to the rest of asia at this point and then volcanoes started popping up in japan about 146 million years ago so now we're getting about halfway through the dinosaur reign the first volcano show up 
And then throughout the whole Cretaceous, Japan still stuck to the rest of Asia, not being an island. So apparently dinosaurs could just freely come and go that whole time. And it wasn't until 15 to 19 million years ago when the Japan Sea formed. And even after that, parts of Japan were still connected periodically to mainland Asia as recently as 11,000 years ago. So we have evidence of migrating animals walking over. I think mammoths are the most recent one 11,000 years ago. And as a little context, the first Mount Fuji didn't form until about 2 million years ago. And the most recent Mount Fuji, the Mount Fuji that we all recognize today as kind of a symbol of Japan, didn't form until 10,000 years ago. So really, Japan, as we know it, is really only about 10,000 years old, or maybe 15 million if you want to <laughs> go by when the Sea of Japan formed. And to put it's that, quite a difference. Yeah, but... In terms of geological time, it's still way, way after dinosaurs. So to put that into perspective, if from when dinosaurs evolved about 230 million years ago to today was represented as one day, the current Mount Fuji would have formed about four seconds ago, and Japan would have formed as an island about an hour and a half ago. <laughs> so I love those kind of comparisons. Yeah, pretty recent. So all those Japanese finds are really something you'd expect to be able to find in the surrounding area since there wasn't really much in the way unless maybe those volcanoes that were popping up around the Jurassic Cretaceous boundary might have separated some of them or something. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to join our growing community, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Thanks again. Until next time. Good day.